Well, uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Yaakov Yadgar. I'm uh, the new Stanley, professor, uh, Stanley Lewis Professor of Israel Studies. It's a pleasure to see you all here. Uh, I'm delighted to actually open the, this year's uh, Israel Studies seminar. Uh, maybe I would say a, a little, uh, just a few words about the context of this uh, seminar and then uh, we'll move on to uh, Dr. Baron's, uh, Baron's I'm sorry, uh, presentation. So uh, during this academic year, the Israel Studies Seminar will explore what it means to widen the horizons of conventional discourse about Israel and we will do so by focusing on various perspectives on Israel. The seminar's objective is to situate Israel within, a, uh, within broader contexts, including thematic, theoretical, methodological, epistemological, and geostrategical. Our speakers throughout the year are invited to offer views of Israel from the socio-political or historical vantage points of various traditions, groups, cultures, and states, or from certain epistemological perspective. We hope that by doing so, we will be able to illuminate topics that may be otherwise neglect neglected in the field of Israel studies, but are nevertheless crucial for understanding Israeli and Middle Eastern politics at large. And our speaker today is uh, Dr. Ilan Baron, who teaches international political theory in the School of Government and International Affairs at Durham University. He is also a member of Durham's Center for uh, the History of Political Thought, and he co-directs the Center for the Study of Jewish Culture, Society, and Politics at the University. His academic work deals with, uh, well, among many other issues, international political sociology, Jewish politics and Zionism, food politics, and the Jewish diaspora. He recently published Obligation in Exile, the Jewish Diaspora, Israel, and Critique, in which he explores the complex relationship between Israel and the diaspora Jewish identity. The title of his talk today is Jews, Israel, and Debate, Understanding Israel in the Diaspora, and I'm uh, pleased to pass the mic to, yes, just. Okay, well, thank you so much for the invitation to be here. It's uh, a real honor, and it's also rather serendipitous that I'm the first speaker because it means you have nobody to compare this to, which is takes a load off my shoulders, exactly. at least for this <laughs> academic year. You set the standard. Yeah, right. Uh, what I, what I want to do in, in my talk today is um, make a case for studying, or make, make a methodological case for the importance of a, a hermeneutic analysis or a, a hermeneutic phenomenological analysis. And uh, in order to do that, I, I want to, I'm going to make reference to a bunch of empirical work that I've done. Um, some stuff which I've just completed. Unfortunately, I'm not going to talk very much about food or cookbooks, but we certainly can have that conversation if anybody here wants to. Uh, so I want to I'm going to start by just explaining a little bit about uh, a research project that I've recently been working on with a colleague, uh, Ari Kelman from Stanford University, uh, doing a we were doing a congregation study in California. And the congregation study was exploring the role of Israel in the life of a single Jewish community. And this was the first time that this kind of study, at least to, to my knowledge, has ever been done. Uh, there's certainly a lot of survey type of data that exists about Israel and Jewish identity and Israel and Jewish communities in the, in the United States, at least, and some in the UK as well. Uh, but I don't think anyone had ever gone into a congregation to do this kind of work. Partially, or perhaps 
largely because there are two topics that one does not debate or discuss in a congregation. One of them is the Holocaust and the other is Israel. Uh, we spoke about one of them. And this was a, a fairly small congregation that we did the, the analysis in. It was a, we were invited uh, into the congregation to do this, to do this study. So it's not as if we, you know, we're looking at, at a map and, you know, pinpointing it was a, a, a result of my book and, and being invited to, to, to do the study. Uh, and we spoke to a little over 50 people, which is a pretty good sample size of the congregation. Um, and also a range of demographics within the congregation, although, as is typically the case, there's a certain demographic that is more active. Um, than other demographics, so there's you know a skew in, in age, and what was interesting about the the interviews that we did was uh, that Israel just didn't come up in the life of this congregation. It wasn't a big it wasn't a big deal, right? It did not take up a lot of time in the life of this congregation. Now, if you pay attention to what the leaders of you know major Jewish organizations are telling us, we should be discussing and thinking about Israel all the time. Right, Israel is right up here along, you know, and if you're a congregation, it should be Israel and, and I guess God, uh, but <laughs> that'll be another conversation. Right? Well, no, you can't discuss the Holocaust, remember? So, uh, but these are the, these are the, these, this is what we should be thinking about. We should be thinking about Israel all the time. It should be up front and center in, in our lives as, as Jews. Uh, I, I should add here that this project, you know, as I mentioned, was done in California. The field work that I've done, the interviews that I've done with diaspora, in, in the diaspora, have been in the UK, some in Canada, and some in the United States. So those are the countries that I have the most knowledge of. For the French case is very different, and very small Jewish communities uh, in, say, uh, Eastern Europe would also be different. I'm not, I'm not really talking about, uh, about any of those groups. I also did interviews in, in Israel when I was doing the book. So what I'm talking about really speaks to the, the North American and, to an ex some extent, uh, British, uh, British Jewry as well. So Israel just Israel just didn't come up. It wasn't something that was regular that was regularly in discussion. You know, you wouldn't hear about it. Uh, you know, after service, it, it just wasn't a big part. The the rabbi of the congregation didn't regularly speak about Israel, but there is an Israeli flag right near uh, near the bima, along with um, certainly there was also in the congregation where I grew up in in Canada on the west coast, and they do say a prayer for the state of Israel. So there is some Israel presence, but other than that. Nothing. And this was a bit of a surprise. It's not what we were expecting. What we expected was that there would be debate, right? That there'd be some sense, some kind of vikuach, there'd be some argument about Israel in this community. And that Israel would be a friction point because that is pretty much the case in most communities. Uh, that Israel is, not, is no longer, if it ever was, a unifying force. It's now become a divisive force. And what we expected to find was something similar to that. So why wasn't, why wasn't Israel there? Well, partially because the, the, the congregants felt that Israel was divisive. They didn't want to get into any debates. Now, they assumed that there was diversity of views within the congregation, but they didn't really have much evidence of this. And they felt that, alongside, they felt that because of that diversity, if they weren't just being with friends who they, whose ideas or beliefs or political um, perspectives they already, under, they already knew, they weren't quite prepared for you know the, 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 the what what could what could arise they weren't and coupled with that was the idea that we should know more than we do about Israel so there's so if you take yourself outside of the congregation and you're out in the bay area or somewhere in california or you know for that matter you know midwest or wherever 
and you're speaking to somebody, it could be out here in the street in Oxford, and Israel comes up, and as, as it always does, right? And they, you know, it comes out that you're Jewish, and then they go, okay, you're Jewish, you must know something about Israel, right? That many of the congregants had internalized that sense that because you're Jewish, you must have some kind of higher level of understanding about Israel than if you're not Jewish. But a lot of them didn't feel they had that higher level of understanding, whatever that might be, but they still assumed it, which meant that they would assume that the person they're speaking to, because they're Jewish in the congregation, they would have known more about Israel than they would. And if they know more about Israel than they do, and they have a different opinion about Israel, and, you're one, and you don't know enough, how would you justify your own opinion? So it's sort of this hotbed of hypotheticals that would just create the potential for debate, which they wanted to avoid. The other thing, so th those were, I think, intellectually, uh, for me at least, the most interesting findings. Uh, and we're still doing, we, ha we have to transcribe, finishing the transcriptions, we have a lot of analysis. This is sort of the, uh, my notes from um, after all the interviews. The other thing which I think is interesting sociologically, although not necessarily as interesting for the case I want to make today, is the opportunity cost and, and bandwidth. That people felt that there's only so much time this is not a priority for me. And especially in this particular congregation, there's a lot of anxiety over Trump and the policies that are uh, going along with, with the Trump administration, that they're very, very politically active and just felt that's where our direct, that's where our energies are right now. We're not going to, we don't have enough time to do everything. Ironically, because there was so much activism politically in, because of Trump and Charlottesville and, um, and, and, uh, and issues on immigration, that then created the impetus with a smaller group within the congregation to say, wait a minute, we're Jews, why are we doing all this other stuff, what about Israel? And so we'll see, well, we'll see what that happens. So, the, so I think what's interesting, the, the, the point I want to take from this was this sense of expecting conflict, the sense also that because of who we are, we should know something about Israel, uh, and more than that, I, more than I think I know myself, and uh, related to that, or the corollary, that other members of the congregation will know more about Israel than I do. And as a consequence of that, a sense of insecurity over how strong are my actual beliefs or political persuasions on this. How would I justify them? Okay. So there's this. Let's just keep that, that uh, uh, set of evidence, if you will, that, that, that story in, in the background for a minute. Uh, I grew up on the west coast of Canada. Uh, this was, as I think one rabbi, was it, I think the current rabbi said, it's harder to get more diaspora than where I grew up. Uh, Vancouver Island, right, uh, it's pretty far west. You know, when the San Andreas Fault eventually splits and there's a big earthquake in San Francisco, I think Vancouver Island will disappear. At least that's the fear I grew up with. It's still there, <laughs> fortunately. Uh, and oddly enough, there's not, not that far in between-ish Victoria and Vancouver on one of the islands is this summer camp uh, called Machane Miriam. It's a member of Habonim Dror, right? The Zionist, labor Zionist organization. And for every summer, for quite a few summers as a kid, I'd go to this camp and live life as if I was on a kibbutz in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. And I mean in the 1960s. Like we learned 60s folk songs, you know, Israeli and American. Uh, and we, you know, from each according to their ability to each according to their needs, it was, you know, this idealist kind of labor Zionist socialist utopia in the West Coast of Canada. And part of what we learned there wasn't just Zionism and labor Zionism, it was also social justice. So the idea of what Zionism meant for us was embedded with a very strong sense of social justice. Um, my personal view is that 
aspect of Zionism just doesn't exist anywhere and it certainly isn't represented in Israel, but that was the idea that we grew up with. It's the idea that many uh, Jews grew up with, that in the diaspora Jews grew up with, that Israel occupies this ideational feature in who we are that is represented by these values. And these values are shaped by social justice, by Jewish history, also by some kind of national self-determination, but we don't really talk about the consequences of national self-determination that much because as is becoming more relevant, it places us in uncomfortable company, particularly with the alt-right in, uh, in the United States at the moment. So this is the idea, so we grew, I grew up with this, you know, this, this, we, you know, the, the, the Israeli flag was in, was in this congregation, there's this labor Zionist camp that I went to, families Israeli, um, and Israel was always close by even though we weren't there. When the Gulf War was going on, it was a big deal, right? We were talking about it all the time, you know, when Israel was attacked, was under, was under threat, we felt it vicariously. So even though we're very far removed, you don't really understand very much about what's going on there, it's a very important part of who we are. And that was very much the case in this congregation in California. Most of the congregants felt Israel should matter to us. Yeah, Israel should play a greater role in the life of the community. I don't know if I'd attend everything because, you know, time. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it should. Israel matters. Why? Why does Israel matter? What is the benefit, or if you want to put it in kind of in those terms, I don't, but some do. Why should Israel matter to us in this way and and why is it becoming so divisive it's not as if debate about israel is new right there's always been debate about israel and about zionism what what's changed or if it if something hasn't changed what's going on now that uh, explains the complexity of of our relationship with israel so i you know growing up with these family connections the zionist uh, i can this labor zionist uh, mythology uh, i eventually wanted to know more, and uh, so I studied this. Um, I actually studied this as a history student, not as a political science student. And the more I read, the more I learned, the more time I spent in Israel, the more uncomfortable I became. That the, the stories I grew up with just were so clearly myths. And I, it's not that they were true or false. They're all true in the sense that we believe them. It's that the, the role they served was very much a mythologizing role. And as a consequence of that, it became very, very difficult to then align, right, those narratives, these mythological narratives, what Israel is supposed to mean to us, with the political discourse that you would hear and with the various multiplicity of events that you could be witness to. And none of them would ever really meet in, an, in, in, in a way that was um, comfortable, right, or agreeable that the more I studied this, the more time I spent in Israel, the more I would talk about this, the harder the relationship became for me. And maybe that says, I think that probably says more about myself than it does about anything else, but I know I'm not alone in this, that there's a very large portion um, of diaspora, again, remember the groups I'm talking about, diaspora Jews, for whom this is exactly the case for them, that the more they see Israel in the news, the more they read about Israel, um, the more uncomfortable they become about what Israel means to them and what kind of connection they should have with Israel. Now, the major Jewish establishment has tried to confront this through various ways, right? The whole birthright type of program is a big one. Uh, but there is something interesting about how these trips to Israel have an effect. So again, these interviews in California, these trips would really, a few people went on them, it would totally 
totally changed their perception. And there was huge debates also about what should you do on these trips, right? Can we organize them? If we are organizing, where are you going to go? Who are you going to see? Can you, you know, is Women of the Wall appropriate? Are you going to go to a settlement? If you're going to go to the settlement, you know, who do you talk to? Rabbis of human rights? Can we talk to rabbis of human rights? Does that mean that other rabbis are against human rights? And it, it you know, it just gets more and more and more complicated. Um, but often the people who go there, they'll come back. And this, the, the phrase which I've heard a few times, uh, not so much in these interviews, but others was you'd go to Israel and you would recharge your Jewish batteries. Somehow going there is like plugging in your iPhone, uh, and I use the iPhone example intentionally, uh, which I'll come back to in a minute, and you become, you're fully charged again. You're back, so you can go back home, and you know, you've, you're, you're, you're ready to go for the, you know, and, and, until I guess you need another, another recharge. Uh, that's very bizarre. Right. I mean, it's like it creates a country as, as if it's an amusement park, right, where you can go and you can separate yourself in a way that enables you to kind of suck up that which you need to make yourself feel whole. Right. That there's a structural relation here where the meaning that you are taking from being there is crucial to who you think you are. There's nothing. I'm not speaking at all about facts on the ground or political orientation. I don't really care about that for this immediate purpose. What's interesting is this idea that you can go to this place and somehow by being there, when you return home, you are recharged. That yourself becomes whole again in a way that it wasn't before you left to go to Israel. And, you know. So that, that's a very interesting dynamic, right? I don't, I'm not, I, and we all have these in you know, these different ways. Going on vacation can do it for some of us, right? I can't mark any more essays, that's it, I need a break. And you, you know, so term is over, I'm gone, I'm turning off my iPhone, I'm not reading anything, any academic stuff. And you come back and you, okay, maybe you got energy again. But this is different. This isn't about taking time off so you've got energy again so you can do your work. This is about going there so you can feel better in yourself because something is missing. And that's not, maybe it's not just ideological if it's ideological at all, that's clearly ontological. And more so, it's phenomenological because it's about who you are in the structures of the world that you find yourself in and how you understand yourself to in interacting within those structures. It's your construction of your identity in the world or uh, it is uh, what it means to be Jewish in the world today. When that world involves something that we call and that we recognize as Israel, that Israel carries a meaning in that relationship. That's, without getting into too much jargon, that's very clearly a kind of uh, structural relationship that fits within a hermeneutic phenomenological analysis, almost to the letter, right? That there is a structural aspect here that you are linking in and you're taking something out of it that's giving you meaning that enables you to function in that same structure. So I mentioned the iPhone. Why the iPhone? Well, these interviews again. We should take pride in Israel. Israel, you know, why is everybody always giving Israel a bad time? I mean, if, you, if you want to boycott Israel, fine. Throw away your iPhone. I, I can't. I think I heard that. I don't know. It seems like I heard every interview, right? That what Israel provides, Israel gives. It's great. What medicine, iPhone, um, irrigation, right? All the stuff that Israel has given the world is fantastic. Why doesn't anybody hear about this? It's our job to kind of give this spiel so everybody realizes the wonderful products that make the world what it is. And somehow we, you know, that and, and people miss that. And in missing that, they're getting a bad story. Well. Who cares, right? Why does, it, why, why does it matter that, and I'm not saying this because I think it shouldn't or shouldn't care, I'm just asking the question. 
if if there's a, if someone's debating about what what Israel is doing, whether Israel's a good country or a bad country, okay, how are you going to do? How are you going to have an argument? So, well, one fairly common example of how that argument functions is in regard to human rights violations. Okay, so Israel's got one of the worst human rights records, you know, out there, and we can look at the UN for telling us this, and you know, so and well, wait a minute, who are the countries that are making these accusations? You know, are they are they innocent parties, right? Let's let's do a let's do a comparison. And the question I have is, well, who cares who's saying them? It's easy enough to do an analysis and to figure out whether or not any of these claims have any merit. And if they do, then you deal with the claims on their own. You don't need to compare with what someone else is doing, right? I don't care if somebody else is doing something really bad. What I care about is me is what you know is if I'm doing it, right? If I'm doing if I'm acting badly, it's my responsibility. If someone else is acting badly, okay, let's. Find some, but I'm not going to compare my behavior to someone else. You know, it's like you would you expect Harvey Weinstein to say, "Look, you know, I'm better than," and then think of who would be worse on your, li- you know, your rogues list of, you know, your rogues gallery. Who's going to be worse? And just President Trump. Right there, you go, Trump. Okay, so the list we can start to give a list, right? That doesn't make one of them less worse in any meaningful sense, right? The comparison isn't very helpful, but somehow we feel the need to do this. Why do we feel the need to do this? Well, I think it's emotional. I think it has to do with, again, that connection, that recharging, that somehow Israel features in the construction of Jewish identity today, at least for those who want it, right? And uh, here I'm going to add a very important caveat. Israel doesn't matter for many Jews, and I don't necessarily think it's you know, my place or anyone else's place to say it should matter, for, right? But for those who think, or those who feel, rather, that Israel is important to them, it's those constituencies that what I'm speaking about, I think, makes, makes the most sense. For those who decide not to, it, it doesn't disprove what I'm arguing. Um, and what's interesting then is why. Um, why do they feel that Israel isn't important for their sense of Jewishness? Uh, but for the moment, that's a constituency which I'm not, I'm not talking about um, that much. Okay, so I'm, what I'm trying to get at here is that meaning, the meaning of Israel is central. It's not what Israel does so much, although clearly that plays a part in it, it's the meaning that Israel provides. So what kind of meaning does Israel provide? Well, in, the, in, in my book, Obligation in Exile, when the price is now considerably cheaper than was initially published, so I think it's now maybe 20 pounds if you get it directly from the publisher. You can, well, Amazon and the publisher, best thing is to probably buy it directly from Edinburgh University Press. Uh, I've heard that some of the, um, yeah, I think they're probably the best, best place to get it. Uh, the, in, in the book, I make the case that obligation is a way to think this through. So why did I use the, why obligation? Largely because I was trying to find a language with which to get to this meaning issue in a political way, right? That the, what interests me is the political relationship and the role of debate. And that's not a language necessarily of phenomenology, but obligation to me seemed more appropriate than the one word which otherwise exists in the literature, which is loyalty. When I wrote this, there was very little and um, that was doing the kind of work that I was doing on the subject. Now it's a bit more, but still not a huge amount. And obligation seemed appropriate because if you're going to have an obligation, there also has to be, there has to be the option or the choice to resist, right? Which is why when Michael Walzer writes about obligation in the 60s, he's linking obligation with questions of civil disobedience and resistance because the two go close, go very close together. You can't have one really without the other. Obligation re- requires that there is that option there. Uh, and that's part of what gives obligation its mo- normative or moral element to it is that there's always this element of resistance. 
uh, in the background, if you will. Whereas with loyalty, you don't have that. If you're not loyal, you're disloyal, and that was not a claim I was prepared to make. You know, and 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 that's why um, I think it's really a question of choice, and uh, as opposed to one of loyalty. But the thing with obligation was, okay, if we're going to think about an obligation instead of loyalty, what does that open up? What does that tell us? Well, what I argue in the book is that it highlights the key areas of friction, right? When Israel arises, and it tells us why those areas arise as friction, right? So one of them is security, one of them is, um, and one of them is debate. And the reason that obligation helps us to understand these as being pivotal moments is because there are central areas where there could be some kind of resistance that would really matter, right? Uh, it's not like whether or not you're going to have tea or coffee and, you know, you're resisting the, I don't know, apartheid bean company of whatever. It's that there's something uh, about your connection to this place that becomes manifest through these choices. And what I felt at the time was that obligation was a way in which we could have a conversation about those choices. Are you obligated or not, and why? And what I was looking for wasn't so much to say there is an obligation, it was rather to find a language with, through which we could have a conversation with Israel that wasn't ideological or necessarily theological, of which I'm not um, skilled or capable really to have a conversation on, uh, but that would give you the room to actually discuss the politics of Israel and Jewish communities today. And the idea of obligation seemed to do that um, because it could help us work through the significance of security and of meaning. Now, uh, with, with, with security, the, the story here is a very complicated one. Not because of the occupation or the wars, but because of the story that Israel exists to provide security for the Jewish people. What if it doesn't? I'm not saying it does or it doesn't, but you have to allow for the possibility that it doesn't when there are threats that, or when there are attacks that go on um, either in Israel and you feel increasing at risk, or if there are attacks in Jewish communities elsewhere, um, and then it, that somehow can, that somehow becomes connected to events in Israel, right? So if there, so when I was doing the interviews for this book, one of the interviews was shortly after. Um, uh, an anti-Semitic attack, and not in Israel. Um, and I was, uh, uh, the, the person I was interviewing, it was initially very, very reluctant to speak with me. I said, why, and, and it, the reason he was reluctant to speak with me was because there's this, this news story, right, that there's, you know, Jews being attacked, and somehow it was linked to events in Israel, it wasn't Israel, but it didn't matter. And that event in another country, right, different community, created this sense of insecurity in this individual. It's like, well, I don't know if I want to talk about Israel with you right now because there's the other events going on and maybe, you know, there's, maybe there's some sort of connection. I don't know who you are. You know, there is some weird-ish insecurity, security dynamic at play here because of what was going on that was related to events in Israel. This person was feeling insecure because of an attack in another country against different people, but, it was, but that attack was related to Israel in some way. If that's the case, then you have to be able to have the conversation what kind of security does Israel provide for us? What is the narrative of security that Israel is providing for us? Because it can't just be the narrative the political Zionists want us to believe in. If it is, we all have to move there. Okay? And then we have to deal with the security that accompanies nation-state politics and international relations, uh, which is another conversation I think we, uh, that, needs to, that we need to have. So the security dynamic becomes very, very complicated once you look at the meaning of the story 
right? That the Zionist security narrative is supposed to tell us. The meaning of that story becomes very important because there's going to be questions to it. If Israel, it does Israel, does the narrative of Israel mean that Israel provides increased security for the Jewish people? And if there are, and if it creates new risks, does that then, that doesn't, if it creates new risks, that does not then mean that Israel is responsible for them, but it does change the dynamic of the narrative, right? It, it adds a layer of complexity. So how do you have that conversation without getting into the hysterics? Uh, as, as David Tversky mentioned uh, in, in the interviews of the book, when it comes to Israel, we tend to get hysterical in the Jewish community. I was trying to find a language that could get us away from hysterics. So that's one of the complications, right, If you're gonna, is the security and the insecure dynamic. The sec and, and how the narratives of Zionism and, and of what Israel means for us play into that, uh, into that, 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 that security story. The the second the second uh, element which I want to the, the, the just mean the second element I want to focus on uh, meaning itself and what kind of meaning do we do, does Israel offer is uh, a question I take up in a forthcoming article that will be out in the Journal of International Political Theory I believe in February something in a few months anyways and um, maybe earlier and. Uh, what I argue in that piece is that the meaning that Israel provides is, a, is one of authority. And this gets back to the recharging the batteries. That the meaning that Israel provides is a kind of authority that is difficult to find elsewhere. And Israel is a really easy place to find it, right? The historical narratives, the, its biblical history, it's, it, you know, you've got everything kind of bundled up in one place you can just walk around and Jewish history just seeps in and you know and, and you know that sort of recharging your batteries thing it's really easy it's really really easy for Israel to do that because there's so much history there that's that is very important for the Jewish people right there's something about the place itself that gives it a lend that that gives it this aura of historical authority for who we are it's a grounding of some kind and I think that in a world where it's otherwise very hard to find that kind of certainty, that kind of grounding, this is a kind of modern, postmodern conundrum, if you will, Israel fills in, the, fills in that void. Now, what, what does that mean? It means that whatever we want Israel to be, it's never gonna live up to it. And that doesn't matter whether you're J Street or APAC, right? Uh, Israel will never live up to what you want it to be because it's trying to provide some kind of authoritative meaning for who you are in a world where you're not quite sure where you sit, which gets us again to hermeneutic phenomenology, mm -hmm. right? This being in the world, right? This worldliness, uh, this and and what what and the meaning that we find in this world, and how we able to function in this world, and what we're looking for in this world, and how does these constant interactions between ourselves and the various structures in the world that we're encountering, right? And and Israel provides just such an easy place to find that kind of grounding. You don't have to go there. Right, it helps, but you don't have to go there, right? You know, you we talk about it all the time, whether it's in whether it's religiously, right, and all the times it comes up in Torah, or whether it's the food, which is becoming a really big deal. Uh, there's even a documentary now in search of Israeli cuisine, which kind of just emphasizes a lot of this, right? Uh, where you can just all the Jewish people, all the vibrancy and the wealth and the creativity becomes you know concentrated in one place. You can create this fantastic. Uh, melange that you otherwise would not be able to experience anywhere else. And yeah, it's vibrant and it's creative and it's wonderful. Uh, it's uh, And it's something which you wouldn't necessarily find anywhere else, um, except now it's being exported as a, as a kind of a culinary good. And that, that place provides this, this meaning. It provides that kind of certainty. 
which uh, I think is otherwise in uh, high demand and short supply. Just to wrap this up, what what does this what am I trying to get at here? Why is this important? Well, what what I think matters is that we we need to be taking a much more theoretical or philosophical approach to the role that Israel functions for diaspora Jewry. This is not just sociological and it's not just empirical, right? And it and it's not and even though I think um, yeah, it's not just sociological and it's not just empirical. And of course, it's historical. Uh, but there's another dimension to the contemporary dynamic of it, uh, which we're missing, right? When I was doing this research, when I, uh, no, sorry, when I was doing my PhD and I was looking at Zionism, I was looking then at doing postdocs, there was nobody, nobody would fund contemporary research that dealt with Israel Zionism. They just wouldn't touch it because it was too controversial. And this is around the time of Campus Watch when that thing, when that was starting and you had professors being vilified, whether they're too critical of Israel, too supportive of Israel. Nobody wanted to go near anything contemporary. There was a funding for, his, for historical studies at the time. I don't know what the case is now. I'm not a historian, but um, I suspect it's still tough. Uh, but at the time, for contemporary, forget it. Uh, and I think that part of the issue here is we become very hung up on a trying to make the case for who did what to whom, as opposed to what meanings are being produced here and how are those meanings then deployed in particular types of debates or discussions. Because for most of us, diaspora Jews, I'm speaking here as one, right, who don't live in Israel, uh, it's those debates and those discussions that we connect with Israel the most, right? This congregation, where I interviewed a little over 50 people, a handful of them had actually been to Israel. Maybe 10, I, I, I don't, uh, I think it was actually less. Uh, many of them wanted to go there. Some of them had relatives or friends who'd gone there, but very few had actually gone. Majority, but but they felt Israel really mattered to them, right? Most of us don't go, right? For all sorts of reasons: time, money, you know, you name it, right? Maybe you're worried about safety. All sorts of reasons people don't go. Still mean, but Israel still matters. Well, how do you engage with that dynamic of Israel? That's not about who did what to whom. That's a sideshow. Right? The debates about who did what to whom, where you're trying to make out who is the greater victim, which is a very unhealthy conversation to have, that's the sideshow. The real story is about the type of meaning that Israel is providing in contemporary debate and contemporary discourse in Jewish communities. That's a conversation we're not having. I think we're not having it because it raises uncomfortable questions about who we are and what we want, right? idealizations, narratives, so on and so forth. And also because, ironically, for a tradition that basically gave hermeneutics to the world, right? We don't seem to be doing this kind of analysis ourselves in a reflexive manner, where we're looking at the hermeneutic role that Israel plays for us as Astro Jews today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Bear.